Yeah, Vaughn? Two twins and an album. I know that was amazing. That was the best one yet. I think. Was I on key? Oh, were you on key? I mean, episode 17. I think nubs. Do I have that correct? Episode 17. I think you're right. To say we're delighted and thrilled is the understatement of, of 2020, perhaps the decade. To be joined by, you know, when we set out to do this podcast, I don't think we actually thought we would ever have one of our selected albums. We would actually be able to have the artist join us, you know, because we're just a couple of doofuses that just decided to podcast it up and you know to 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 think that for an album that when we were talking about doing this podcast this is the type of album that we want to discuss to think that we are joined by not only the artist of this 1980 album adventure but a dude who has just contributed countlessly to the arts to pop culture through music, through novels, through theater, through television. This guy, this guy knows what he's doing. And we are just beyond thrilled to be joined. I, I, can't, I can't even believe I'm about to say this. I know this um, is like very cool. But um, we are joined today to discuss the adventure album, which was performed and produced by the great Rupert Holmes by... Rupert Holmes himself. Rupert. Answering machine. I'm not in the present. I'm sure you know. This is very exciting. So who's going to be the guest who's joining you? I'm, I'm really, you <laughs> sounds like an amazing person. And just the three of us, right, with, with this guest. Uh, now, I can, can I guess who it is? You said it's someone who's achieved great things in, in the arts. Oh, man. So, it's Barishnikov, isn't it? It's, it's someone in ballet. Is that it? Yeah, I think I see a Tony Award in the background there, don't yes. I? Isn't, yeah, exactly. You know, hey, listen, awards mean nothing as I tell my three sons, Tony, Tony, and Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Rupert, thank you so much for taking time to talk to just two twin dumbasses who have this album podcast. And it's a big deal for us and such a big deal for our little podcast here to, to have you join us. We really appreciate it, man. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, thank you for, I actually, it was much appreciated your interest in one of my lesser, lesser, lesser known albums. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and also your podcasts are very entertaining and your points of view are very entertaining. So um, I'm, We'll probably achieve a new low of that here today. Uh, but, uh, but you know, there's always next week, right? You know what's interesting, Rupert, is like, it's funny just to hear you say this is a lesser known album because we grew up with this album. One of the reasons yeah. why it means something to us is this is one of the albums from a mom who was very musical and introduced us to great stuff. So it's just even weird for us to comprehend that this is a lesser known album because it's like a fabric album for us. And it's yeah. going to be awesome to hear you talk about it. 
it's hard for me to comprehend listening to past podcasts that you've actually grown up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, barely. Yeah. Fair, fair. No, I, no, no. Listen, listen, I know, but I know what you're saying. I mean, I've, I had albums growing up and I'm, you know, I sometimes I thought, you know, I might be the only one who actually owns this album, you know, and and there was something kind of um, cool about that. Uh, it was like within my family. Uh, my brother and I would listen to the same albums. He wasn't my twin. And that's the good news for him. But uh, um, we would and sometimes we would think maybe we are the only two people in the world who really appreciate this album. And it made us have a closer kinship with it. I'm sure everyone who listens to your show has some album that they think they kind of think of as theirs. You know, um, I was actually talking to someone who wrote this long article uh, on uh, her own blog and adventure. It's so surprising that, the, that I saw this. I was actually researching. I was trying to remember some of the things about adventure <laughs> in preparing for being with you guys. And I came across this one other person. This, so it makes three of you now um, who just went over every cut. And, uh, and I thought, isn't that interesting? But it, it, she obviously did have this kind of personal relationship with the, the album. Sometimes you, you kind of like that. You don't like it. A lot of people, when, when I finally had uh, a, a monster hit, you know, when Escape the Pina Colada song became number one uh, and Partners in Crime became a gold album, my fifth album which preceded the one we're going to be talking about here today. But there were a lot of people who had been listening to my early albums and, and I'd perform and they'd come up to me after the concert and they'd say something like, don't tell me about partners in crime. Don't tell me about Pina Colada. I was there. I, I know stuff about you. You don't know. And, <laughs> and they were almost angry. You know? <laughs> right. uh, they felt very possessive. So yeah, anyway, it's yeah. very nice to, it's nice to meet both of you. It's um, nice to try to comprehend your nicknames. <laughs> and uh, and uh, tr and try to make some sense of it all. Well, it's it's a real thrill for us. And part of this was hearing you on the Gilbert Gottfried um, podcasts, where you've made a couple of appearances. And so between that and and like I sort of said from the onset, the point of this podcast, and 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 it's amazing that you've even you know heard a little bit. Um, but you know we're trying to talk about albums that in some cases are really acclaimed and that in some cases not enough people may know about. Mm. And so when we were talking about doing this, I, I swear like the third one on my list was adventure because it's just one of those records that, and we'll get into it as far as, you know, the track by track and all those things that we like to do. But it's one of those that really, I think kind of defined in a way why we wanted to do this and introduce more people to a record that we just think has held up tremendously well. And, and certainly to your earlier point, meant a lot to us in sort of a personal sense. So we're, right. we're and That's, I'm not going to lie, Rupert, it's a difficult album to find a lot of information about. It's, yeah, you know, I know. It's, it's tough. So having you, you know, speak to it will just be very, very cool for us. Well, the, 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 I, think the, I think the phrase I said around when it first came out was that it wasn't released, it escaped uh, from the <laughs> label, you know. I, it's an interesting background to the um, You'll be the judge if it's interesting. But, you know, when my single Escape hit number one on the charts, I was on a record label out of New York called Infinity Records. The day that my record went to number one on the charts, um, the parent company, MCA Records, folded my record label, the record label that I was on, Infinity Records. They just told everybody, just in time for Christmas, you're all unemployed. 
There is no Infinity Records anymore. And goodbye. Hmm. And then MCA Records on the West Coast, who I had no connection with whatsoever, suddenly said, so is there anybody from Infinity Records that we want to keep since we're the mother company? We can." And someone said, well, you might be interested to know that you, if we keep Rupert Holmes, we've got the number one record in the country. And they said, well, I guess we'd be dumb not to accept that, number one, and we didn't have to do anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I suddenly found myself an artist on MCA Records, a West Coast company. I knew absolutely no one there, didn't know the promotion people, didn't know the publicist. No one at MCA had ever done anything to make Escape a hit or make Partners in Crime a gold album. They reissued it. So sometimes you can find a 45 on eBay that says Infinity Records. And sometimes you find it saying MCA. Him came out the follow up that went to number six on the charts. That was an MCA record. Again, Escape sort of helped break that record. When it was time for my next album to come out, I was on a label that absolutely had no idea who I was, who had never met me. And so I was making this record and having it released in a virtual vacuum. That sort of, that certainly didn't help. Uh, so when you say it's kind of hard to find out a lot about the album, it's because um, it just kind of meandered out into the wilderness. Yeah. And, uh, and that was difficult. Yeah. Yep. Well, we sure know about it. And before we dig into adventure, uh, Rupert, if you wouldn't mind joining us for a little segment we like to call Round and Round and talk about any albums you're into recently. Would you, would you, uh, would you join us for that? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Excellent. Well, let's, uh, let's cue it up. Rupert Holmes, what's round and round for you? I'm a very eclectic listener. I, 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 at, at the moment, um, it's very hard for me to use mute. Uh, for, for me, there is no such thing as background music. Mm -hmm. I can't put on an album and then like write a novel. I'm currently writing a novel, my third novel. My first two were published by Random House. The first one was made into a movie with Colin Firth and Kevin Bacon. And... Um, Second one came with a CD of all the music referenced in the novel that was original music. And this one is uh, for Simon and & Schuster. And I'm finishing it right now. I mean, I'm down to the last three chapters. Uh, it's called uh, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide. And it's a self-help book for murderers. And I'm not, I'm not kidding, <laughs> except it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's, uh, it's not of serious. Course. Of course. Uh, so the first, the first volume in the series that I'm writing for Simon & Schuster is called Murder Your Employer. And I figure there's going to be people who will buy it just to leave it on their desk, you know, where people <laughs> would. So um, I'm finishing that. But the problem for me is that if I put an album on in the background, I can't write. You got to focus on it. I yeah. have to focus. And yeah. if I'm sitting in a restaurant and there's music playing in the background, I'll be saying, you know, I thought next week we might G minor seven over a C. <laughs> now he's going yeah. to an A seven over a C sharp. Yeah. And he's yeah. resolving it to a B flat. That's like a playable cadence. It's That's a curse, kind of cool. isn't it, Rupert? It's a curse. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Because I, I, I must listen, and I must listen to the rhyme scheme yeah. when I can find one. Yeah. And uh, so so very often the things I listen to are spoken word or, or just sound effects. So right now I'm, I'm listening to a great recording of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross by David Mamet. Uh, I'm listening to uh, an album, which is the score that Bernard Herrmann wrote for a Hitchcock film called Torn Curtain, mm -hmm. which came out with, starred Paul Newman and uh, Julie Andrews. Interesting film, not one of his better known films, but the tragedy is that Bernard Herrmann, who wrote the score for Psycho, 
for North by Northwest for Vertigo, one of the greatest scores ever composed. He wrote the, the yep. end title music for the Twilight Zone TV show. He wrote Half Gun Will Travel. Um, they threw out his score. They wanted a more con- what they called a more contemporary score, and they hired another composer who wrote kind of like murder she wrote kind of music. And this is the score that was abandoned by Hitchcock after mm-hmm. after Bernard Herrmann had served him so well. And mm-hmm. uh, it's an amazing score, and it's been reissued. I have the poster right across the hall in my basement of Vertigo, the film uh, yeah. on my wall. So one of my the main the main movies. title the main title of Vertigo is one of the most romantic and 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 opulent pieces of music ever written. Yeah. It's, it's 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 Wagnerian and it's heartbreaking and it's sumptuous yeah. and it's chilling. Uh, that's what's there. Oh, and then another album that I love is called Jazz at Massey Hall. It was recorded on like a webcore tape recorder, and it was. Um, an, a dream concert of Charlie Parker, also known as Bird, Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet, Max Roach on pal on piano, and Charlie Mingus on bass. And that's like that's like you've died and gone to bebop yeah. heaven. So, yeah. so the, those are three I'm listening. As you can see, very much on the pulse of 2020, very much <laughs> what everyone else is listening to on Sirius FM, you know? No, so there's God help me. That you're you're absolutely right. That roster you just rifled off there and that last one is uh ooh, yeah. that's an all, that's an all-star team, eh? Yeah, that is. Yeah, Rupert, you're not gonna, you're going to learn. We're not very dialed into 2020 either. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> it's not really our it's not really our forte. Okay. So, I'll prove that just by uh I, I could sing you to be How do you kick a Pink Floyd kick? I don't know. I I, I can't seem to get out of this. <laughs> we did an episode on Pink Floyd animals and it's like all i've listened to since so first for me t is pink floyd adam hart mother an album that i'm still trying to figure out uh top to bottom if i really like it or not and for me it's a newish floyd experience because it's not an album that i spent a lot of time with so i'm i'm digging now into more of the obscurities on my end so that's one another kind of obscure choice gary newman uh made an album with a collaborator named Bill Sharp called Automatic. And this was in 1989 for Newman. And so it's, again, it's a new experience as a huge Newman fan. And so I've been digging into that. And then uh, I, I recently scored a, uh, a kind of upgraded copy of the first Pat Metheny group album on ECM records. This is kind of that original group that Metheny had. And it's just like a perfect late seventies, I wouldn't say smooth jazz because I think that puts it into a bad category, but just a really nice sounding, like typical ECM album from Pat Metheny and the rest of that group, Lyle Company. Tasty stuff, really good stuff. It is tasty. You bet. Mm. I never never get tired of Metheny. No, no. Toph, that's what's around and around for me. What's around and around for you, man? Well, I've got, you know, three things as per usual that are quite different uh, from one another. The first is actually a brand new record by a very heavy band called the Deftones that uh, we've talked about a few times in their album. I've heard of them. Yeah, they're really good. And their uh, their record is called Oms, O-H-M-S. And uh, so that's, I haven't dug into it much yet, but looking forward to it. The second is a little album that you may, it's a band you may have heard from. Rupert, let me know if you've heard of these guys. They're called the Beatles. Um you know, um, that's the that's Stuart Sutcliffe's band, isn't yeah, it? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then he went on to form Wings with, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, with Cody. Yeah. No, uh, yes, I, I actually, <laughs> on my second album, I had a cut called I Don't Want to Hold Your Hand. Ah, and, it in, yeah. and in it, it incorporated 
every Beatles lick of every single they made for the first three years of their existence. Yeah. Um, and my, my um, producing partner, Jeff Lesser, uh, was working at Air Studios in London and George Martin was there. And he played it for George Martin, played the cut for George Martin. George Martin said it's better than the, the original. And here, I, I do have to share this with you. I, I'm sorry, to, I don't yeah. have a high No, please, album, please. But I do, I do actually have. So one time um, I'm at a, a special dinner that ASCAP threw for American songwriters who of, that they considered to be good representatives of ASCAP. And uh, the guest was Paul McCartney. And I'm brought over to meet Paul McCartney. And uh, not intimidating at all. Well, yeah, you're, you're hearing me. You're hearing my unusual reticence, just finding the right words, you know, here, which has never been a problem for me. I'm a human thesaurus, but, but, but I'm trying to indicate what that meant to me, right? And yeah. um, someone said, uh, Paul, um, this is Rupert Holmes. And he said, oh, I'm a big fan of your work. And oh. I said reflexively, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, and then I thought my first words to Paul McCartney are, yeah, right. <laughs> luckily, his, his then wife, Linda Eastman, was mm -hmm. Linda McCartney, obviously, from Wings, mm -hmm. was with him. And she said, no, 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 we know your albums. We didn't. And they started mentioning titles of things I'd done. Oh, and they it proved was, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, still, that was happened a long time ago. And I'm still walking, you know, on air from that. <sighs> yeah. And there's a nice, yeah. I have a great photo in my collection uh, of Paul arm around me holding a big thumbs up. And, and, you know, if he was making it up, it, actually he referenced enough song titles of mine for real. And it yeah. may have been that song. I want to, I don't want to hold your hand. That sort of clued him into me in the first place, mm -hmm. but he mentioned enough of my song titles that I thought, you know, it's possible that this is the truth. But all I thought about was how generous of him, um, even if it wasn't the truth, because he knew the power he had. Sometimes people just have the power to make your life worth living. Yeah. And they and they dispense it. That's I had a chance so cool. to meet John Lennon once, and I was afraid to because I was afraid he'd do something that he'd say something snide, and then that would be shattered forever. So yes, That's I incredible. have heard of the, I have heard of the Beatles, and <laughs> the, one of the great thrills of my life was in 1963 when I was in high school. Um, I was in France, and I turned on the radio, and I heard this really great record, and it sounded like. I thought it was the I, th I thought it was the Everly Brothers because it had all these open fourth harmonies and it was really good. Mm -hmm. And I remembered the title was called From Me to You. And then there was another one called um, Thank You, Girl. And again, I thought, boy, this is the best stuff the Everly Brothers have ever done. <laughs> I go to London after that and I'm living in a flat in London and there's a girl living there. I'm 16 years old and she's got this single and it's From Me to You. And thank you, girl, on the other side, on, I guess it was Parlophone. Mm -hmm. And it says the Beatles, and they've even misspelled it, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. And I said, this is who does that? I thought it was the Everly. She said, no, no, it's the Beatles. They're, they're the, the best. Yeah. And she said, they're going to be on tonight and on top of the pops. And they turned on top of the pops, and they were introducing a new song of theirs called She Loves You. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be going back to the States, and I know something they don't know yet. <laughs> Yep. And I'm going to start growing my hair now. <laughs> right. We all had short haircuts at that yeah, time. Yeah. It's hard to the, imagine. The anyway, so top. yes, you you were listening to something related to the Beatles. Yeah. Talk. So so the album, uh, I'm, I was digging into Beatles for sale this week. And, mm. you know, I'm a big revolver guy, you know, and 
it's it's always interesting because there's always this thinking of when, when did the, the the band really pivot? And some people right. think it was Sergeant Peppers, and some people think it was Revolver. And then you kind of say, yeah, but there was this thing called Rubber Soul, and you know that sort of Dylan esque thing that sort of took them into more of a melancholy. So then. But but what I'm realizing is that there was a pivot point with Beals for Sale too. Absolutely, and, absolutely, yeah. and I'm here to tell. I'm going to slam. I'm going to once again hijack your please, your, please. Your conversation. <laughs> no, you know. Let me tell you something. First of all, I was I lived that. Okay, like yeah. every Beatles single that ever came out after "She Loves You," I heard for the first time. No one else had heard it before either. I'm saying it wasn't like I got to hear a couple of cuts from the White Album and a couple of cuts from the. It was there when we heard rubber when we heard Beatles for Sale, which was called uh, Beatles '65 over here in the states, right? right That's right. the equivalent. That was the capital version of the Parlophone album, right? Beatles for Sale had like two or four extra cuts on it from Beatles '65. Right. So remember that every time we heard a new Beatles record, there was nothing ahead of it. We didn't know what was coming, so we could demarcate when the whole music scene was changing because right. of one cut they did. Right. And and so what I'm saying to you is Rubber Soul changed everything. Yeah. But Rubber Soul came as no surprise to me because of cuts like No Reply mm-hmm. and uh, I'm a Loser yeah. and uh, uh, I'll Be Back Again. Every two right. albums, Capital would reissue a an additional album that wasn't a British album made of the made of what was left over from the things they had cut. Right. From the British albums. Right. Yeah. Yesterday I mean, and today you, and all yeah, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday and yep. today. Right. Um, but I'm telling you now that when things really changed was that Beatles 65 album. Because that, that was the first time some of this melancholy. It was the first time yep. that Lennon started singing a little bit differently than he, you know. Yep. What have I done to? He started, Dylan started to creep into his yep. voice a little. He allowed that. Definitely. And when we all heard help, um, we weren't surprised when he did. I mean, he was doing Dylan. He's like, here yeah. I stand. Yeah. Head in hand. Turn yeah. my face to the wall. Yeah. And I'm saying, who are you? Hydra Loveaway is all Dylan. Just right, all Dylan. Right, right. <laughs> but that started with this happened once before. Yeah. I came yep. to your door. Right. So exactly. each one of those albums that you name was a mini revolution. It was as if there was a yeah. revolution. And, you know, in other words, Karl Marx overthrew this and then Trotsky overthrew that and then Stalin overthrew that. And uh, and if they had stopped with Beatles for sale and never made another album, they would still be worthy of everything that we give them credit for now. No Truly. Question. No question. But the one, the one that really sort of cemented the fact that they were no longer the fab foursome and were an artistic force full of all kinds of colors and shadings and nuance was actually probably rubber soap, which was precursored very well by, by Beatles, uh, uh, Beatles for sale. Sorry to take away your album. In fact, I'd love to ask you if you had to pick, I know this is such a ridiculous question. If you had to pick one Beatles record to take with you and leave the rest behind, which one would you go with? You're cruel. (laughs) Um, first, First of all, first of all, if, I can't do that. Okay, Meet the Beatles was such a change in the entire landscape of music, of pop music. That first album where every band seemed to be a hit record. Not that they were all released as singles, but, you know, you think about it won't be long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you're coming, uh, 
it, nothing had been like that before. That combination of a little wry wit and the fact that just sitting there and saying, wait, let me understand it. These guys sing as good as the Four Seasons, but wait, I don't mean there's no comparison between the two. But what I'm saying is the thought that a band could sing all their vocals, play all their instruments and write the vast majority of their songs imbued with the personality that you heard in the voices. That was a startling idea. And the idea that they were hung around together. We love the idea of we love seeing photos of them just walking around as four guys. Like mm-hmm. so they were hoods, but they were the best. They were the most musical hoods that anyone ever conceived of. So, so if I only had one, the thrill of being 16 years old and that being an album that I could make into my way of life and, and say everything that I ever want to be is on this album. That's that. If yeah. I had only one album for pleasure, it might be Beatles for sale. It might be okay. Beatles for sale. With a, right. But Rubber Soul would be a very, very close. Yeah. When Sgt. Pepper came out, I thought it was a staggering achievement. But something about achievement, that word, takes. it, it, it was a little less fun. It, it started to be the beginning of them not really being a group anymore. And actually, that had been happening yeah. all along. Yeah. We didn't yeah. realize, when we used to hear these records... And we heard three voices singing the lead at the same time. We thought that was all three of them. And when they performed live, it was all three of them sometimes. But but then to learn as we did, as I learned studio techniques more and started making records like Morning Man on Adventure, where I'm doing like 14 voices all at one time. And it's all just me. Him, the same thing. It's always nice when you see... Um, my bad lip syncing to him because I had a, a wonderful backup singer, talented woman named Chrissy Faith. Unbelievable. And on camera, she's singing him, him, him. What's she going to, there's no female vocal on that record. Right, she was just right, lip syncing. Right, it right. Was all, but, but at the time we didn't understand that a lot of these records like this boy, when we were hearing this boy, we, we thought we were hearing all three of them. Yeah. And that's probably just Lennon doing yeah. all those harmonies. Right, uh, so right. Anyway, sorry, I've taken you so is, far. Is she, by the way, is she the one busting out the vocals on Blackjack there at the end? Yes, absolutely, uh, yeah. Very nice. I wrote, that, I, I wrote Blackjack and also a song called Crowd Pleaser on the same album. They yeah. were basically supposed to give her a showcase. Yeah. Well, we'll get into those. My, my third uh, pick is, because uh, we could talk about the Beatles for... Six yeah. episodes. Mistake. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm saying there's no room for my album now. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Is uh, by the Meters, uh, and uh, it's called Strutton. So this was the old New Orleans, uh, you know, funk band, and this was the first album where they introduced vocals, which kind of makes it interesting. But big fan of the Meters, and never a bad time for those guys. So um, that wraps up our round and round, and and I think um, show's over. what we're going to do is dig into adventure and um as we said from the onset really hearing you talk about this will be great it is difficult to find information it is an album that you know you know that's personal for us why don't we uh dig right in then to the uh, uh to and this will probably be the best nerdy deets section we've ever done on the show with rupert here but let's uh let's dig into the nerdy deets here adventure came out in 1980 now uh just so you know we were actually born in 1980 uh february 14th 1980 so um, so we are the same age as this record, which maybe is part of why we, you know, have a connection to it, but this was your sixth studio album and this was your sixth record in seven years. Do I have that right? 
Um, that sounds about right. That's, I mean, to think of, to put that in the context of today is amazing. I mean, some no, it was, it was, it was terrible. I had it was actually terrible. I had a year off. Um, there was a year where I didn't make an album, and I was I was really free. I would, was concerned that I had made my last album already. This was before oh. Escape, before Partners in Crime. Yeah, you know, it was considered appropriate to make one album a year. And if you were a big seller, you'd probably stick a Christmas album in there recorded in June, right? Yeah. And yeah. try and get it out. But yeah, about one album a year. Um, the first one, widescreen, took the longest time. It took me nine months. Okay. Uh, because it had 45 musicians, 10 actors. I wanted. I never knew if I would make a second album when I made my first album. I right. only had a one album deal. So I thought, I bet anything I've ever wanted to say in an album, I better get it. Yeah. I better get it into this first one. So we took yeah. a long time. With it. Yeah. Well, here's my copy right here. Ah, uh, yes. If I could just one-up you, Rupert, I have the Japanese imported version. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because well. I wanted the best possible mastering. <laughs> this album. And it comes with this, this bonus sheet with, you know, it's got the lyrics, but it, then it's got some nerdy deets right here, T. So, oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I, so I, I think I win the award here for best copy because... I ordered this one from Japan. I would agree. Yeah. Mine has the sticker on it though that that oh, highlights the, the yeah. two singles. So that's good. That's good. That sticker. You know, and just, by the way, your, yours are actually even more rare than you think because those are the unautographed copies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I know, you want to know what's terrible? It's a terrible thing to go into a, a, a record store that sells old vinyl albums. And it's a terrible thing. And someone has come in with their record collection and, and sold them like 40 albums for like $5. And then they're selling them for $1.98 each or something like that. <laughs> and it's a terrible thing to go through a bin. And it's bad enough to find one of your old albums in there. But when it's an autographed album, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's painful. Yeah, that's Rupert, a tough day. Rupert, while we're in the nerdy deets, could, could I yeah. get your take on the cover art? It's just this... The cover art would suggest to me they were trying to turn Rupert Holmes into more, uh, continue the pop star image of you. It's this singular picture of you in this lovely white sweater, almost giving a little bit of a smirk as if you're saying, take the damn picture already. Yeah. But, uh, tell, how, what, what, what do you think is this? I think, I think it's a fabulous cover. I got to say, like I you're too. rocking the, the, you got like the beard, the hair looks incredible. <laughs> the glasses, like you're just owning it. Like, look at that. I mean, <laughs> I think it's um, a fabulous cover. I think, you know, MCA, the label I, I found myself on at that point, um, was evolving into a country label, which is why, by the way, one of the reasons I think Olivia and John's singles started to become almost country crossover records. Uh, they were better at promoting country records than they were at doing pop, ex with the exception of Elton John. Mm -hmm. But Elton John sort of took care of Elton John. It didn't matter what label he was on. They were going to do well. Um, I, you know, I think, I think they came, they basically did a couple photo sessions. I remember there was a book um, around that time called uh, Your Erroneous Zones. And there was a photo of this guy and he just looked all confident on the cover. And he had no reason to be. <laughs> and he was confident. And I thought, all right, so I got the I got the nice knit sweater. I got the tight white jeans. I think we, uh, was it Nubs who said smirk that this is yeah, it's just yeah, a little, yeah, it's like yeah. a little yeah, yeah. it's a little yeah, smirk it's like one. me saying yeah, it's sort of like me saying to Paul McCartney yeah right, and it's like, <laughs> it's like you're Rupert Holmes superstar, and I'm going like yeah right. So <laughs> I think that sort of expresses. The, yeah. I think the main thing I thought was that 
the white sweater and the white jeans, it meant that there was a lot of room for me to write a, a long inscription if I was autographing the album. <laughs> <laughs> the, most most albums, the problem when you have like an album that's very dark colors is you're writing stuff to people and saying, who was with me from the very start and whose support I've been forever. And they can't read any of it. It's all on a black background. So I thought, oh, good, nice white sweater. I can write all my inscriptions on that. Well, I got to <laughs> say, I mean, listen, the idea of you as a, you know, I, as a little bit of a sex symbol at this time, isn't, isn't that outland? I mean, some of your songs, I mean, even on this morning, man, and some of your other catalog, I mean, you were a pretty sexed up guy back then. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's I, what I was trying to do. I know it sounds silly, but I was, I mean, this started, as I say, I, I did this cut on my second album called, I don't want to hold your hand right? because right. by the time I was 18 or 19, you know, there's John Lennon. He can have any person he wants in the world. Right. And he's saying what his goal is, is that he wants to hold your hand. Right. And I'm thinking, you want to hold <laughs> someone's hand. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like um, yeah. uh, Richard Belzer used to complain. He said, Mick Jagger's saying, I can't get no satisfaction. And he said, if Mick Jagger can't get no satisfaction, what hope is there for me? So I started to try to incorporate adult relationships and sexuality into my lyrics, not smirking sexuality, not, uh, I wasn't using, you know, euphemisms for sex. I was just yeah. trying to talk about situations where sex is definitely a part of the, uh, of the, yeah. uh, of the vocab context and vocabulary. Uh, and by the way, the escape, the pina colada song is not about pina coladas. It's about two people trying to hook up. Uh, I mean, what is their intent to hold each other's hand? Probably not. You know, so, so, so yeah, I, 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 it wasn't that I was stylizing myself as that. It's just as a writer, yeah. I was trying to incorporate what people really think about yes. and what they really do. Well, I think that's um, what helped a lot of people connect because the, I mean, when I think of your work lyrically, tongue in cheek, clearly, obviously, but a lot of situational stuff and, and, and where you really can put yourself in that position and whether it's sex, whether it's a relationship, whether it's something funny that happened or some person that, you know, you bumped into in the street and was a jerk, all those things, they, those are, I think a lot of the pieces that even if intentionally tongue in cheek really connect and really are memorable. You know, not trying to get ahead of you here, but in the title song, the lead off cut adventure, my favorite Part of that is, um, after all this very bombastic keyboard work and all like that, the whole song settles down to just acoustic guitars. And, and I sing one of my favorite lines to sing, which is, uh, and I stand in total awe at the simplest things that people say and do. I think true adventure lies in the ins and outs of those like me and you. And I was basically trying to say we don't have to do trumped up movie yes. plots. The things that people happen to people every day are are as a complex Harlequin romance novel. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. probably a lot more honest and a lot more um, variegated in terms of um, the shadings of emotion. So, yeah. so yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm a terrible, um, a, a harmless voyeur in that I like to look at couples <laughs> in restaurants and in airports. And I, my theory is that anytime you see a couple that makes no sense, it's just that you don't know enough about them yet. Right. In other words, you see a couple and you say, what is he doing with her? Or what is she doing with him? And I, if you could follow them home and find out how they talk to each other when they're alone, 
and possibly look into their closets or their dresser drawers or something, you would find, oh, I see. I yeah. see now. Now I understand. Once, yeah, I wrote a song called The People That You Never Get to Love, and it's about all the people that you see in the course of your life where you think, I could love that person. Right. You don't know them. You'll never see them again. You're just passing them on a train or something. And, and, um, and you don't. And uh, that becomes a song. Yeah, yeah. So you're coming off of... You know, certainly what at the time Partners in Crime, which had been commercially very successful and critically very successful with, you know, him and Escape. I mean, these are, you know, these are big hits. What was kind of the approach? And you, and you touched on a little bit earlier with the kind of MCA transition and, you know, some of the um, idea of kind of going into this blind a little bit, but creatively and from a composition standpoint, clearly this is this was a bit more of a rocker type album for you, but what was kind of the thinking of what you were looking to, to do with adventure as you were composing? And were, were a lot of these songs already sort of in the can from previous, you know, stuff you had worked on or, or did you kind of write for adventure? I think, um, I think pretty much all of the album was written for the album. Um, okay. I think I had sketched the song special thanks, the last cut on the album. I think I had already sort of written a sketch of that. Most everything else was written for it. I had changed as, as, a, as an artist in, in the following ways. My albums, my initial albums, remember, as, as you pointed out, this is my sixth album I'm about to make here, Adventure. But my first albums were very much products of the studio. Uh, they were like my version of Sgt. Pepper in that you couldn't, you couldn't actually recreate them live. Yeah. Um, as I said, my first album had 56 musicians, 10 actors, and each cut had a completely different sound to it. I reassembled the Glenn Miller band for one cut about a sax player who never gets to, in 1940, never gets to take a solo. I did a 10 minute radio show with uh, Alison Steele, who was at that time a very sultry DJ playing Lauren Bacall, basically. I did all kinds of strange cuts. Um, and, uh, and that had continued. Um, through, through the years, I, I was very much making studio albums and I did not tour in support of the albums. <laughs> My second album was supposed to be an album I was going to tour with. And I found a, a terrific, um, uh, kind of punk band at that time named laughing dogs. And in your obscure search for records, you might look for some of their stuff, Laughing Dogs. And, and they became my, the basic band for my second album. And the idea was that I would tour with them, but then suddenly Barbara Streisand called up and said, I want to record your songs and I want you to arrange and conduct the album. And I'd like you to write some songs for this movie, A Star is Born. And, and you said, I thought, okay, right? I mean, I it, said, okay, yeah, thought, thought it through. And... <laughs> yeah, and I said, laughing, I guess that tour of crummy bars, <laughs> we'll put that in abeyance while I go get my office on the Warner Brothers back lot. Okay. What's it like to get um, that phone so, call? I mean, that's, that's, yeah. you know, oh, that's, that's amazing. Changer. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, this is Barbara Streisand. Listen, I've been listening to your album and uh, uh, I like the songs and I'd like to record them. And I see you do all your own arrangements. So mm -hmm. it'd probably be a good idea if you flew out here and did the, did the sessions with me, you know, we'll do you know 45 piece orchestra, I figured. And, uh, and I said, that is the worst Barbara Streisand impression I've ever heard. <laughs> Who is it? Right. And it turned out it was Barbara Streisand. And I did an album with her called Lazy Afternoon, gold album contained four of my songs. I did all the charts, had 
young players on it, like a guy, there was this keyboard player named David Foster. It was one of his first recording sessions. Lee Rittenauer, you know, just amazing musicians. Um, Anyway, sidetrack there. So I didn't tour with my second album. My third album was very much a, a studio album, trying to create each cut being a different genre in the top 40. Um, it was called Singles. Fourth album was going to be a, an album about my hometown of Nyack, New York. And then it got kind of altered by the label. And they said, no, we don't want you doing that. And I had a single that was climbing the charts and then they went out of business. So I had a record called Let's Get Crazy Tonight on private stock and private stock folded. Sound familiar? Folded. <laughs> the company record company folded as it was uh, hitting like 60 with a bullet. Yeah. Then my next album, Partners in Crime, is an out-and-out hit. And, yeah. um, and I go and start touring. And the band that I used on the album, except for my lead guitarist, who I'd worked with a lot during my career, Dean Balin, uh, they were not ready to go out on a, on a tour. They were New York, successful New York studio session musicians. Yep. So I created this band to be the band that I toured with. And I toured with them for, you know, 10 months everywhere because Pina Colada was a hit not only in the United States, it was a number one in Canada, number one in Japan, number one in Australia. And suddenly I went from someone who had only been vocalizing in a recording studio, you know, during the making of one album a year to someone who was having to sing every single night. And my manager was only interested in making money because he was taking half of it for himself. And, um, and he, he didn't care where I was booked as mm-hmm. long as it was money. Mm-hmm. And so I would find myself in a different kind of venue every single night. This is while I'm touring in support of Escape the Pina Colada song, Him, Answering Machine. Okay, this yeah. is before adventure. So one night I would be performing at Disney World. Next night I would be at a, at headlining for a week at the, at the Diplomat Hotel with my opening act being Bob Saget the filthiest comedian that you've ever <laughs> heard in your life from full house. Yep. Um, and then I'd be playing at a club called, um, Oh, come on, help me now. Hold on. DBs in Dearborn, Michigan, you know, oh, Dearborn, Michigan, don't you? Yeah, of course. It was a, it was a nightclub in the Dearborn Hyatt hotel. Uh, okay. And I was okay. there for a week. Yeah. And, uh, and then I would be at a jazz club. Then I would be at the bottom line. So I was playing yeah. every kind of venue. But the main thing was that I was singing every single night of my life. And my yeah. voice started to get strong from the yeah. workout. At first it went hoarse and then it became strong. And I was doing a lot of TV at that time. And I was, you know, you, a lot of the TV was live. You were singing live. Mm-hmm. And, and so as it was time for me to make this next album, there were a couple of things that I knew from the outset. One is I would be performing this album, which I had never had in my head with any prior album. Yeah. My albums were studio things, but I knew that I had been out on the road for 10 months and I knew that my manager would book me out on the road in supportive adventure. Yeah. Two, I loved the musicians I was working with. They were terrific players. And also they paid the price of, you know, it's not great when you're a musician and someone has a, like, for example, if Paul Simon does an album like Still Crazy after all these years, he'll use the best New York studio musicians for that. So Grady Tate will be on drums. And, and yeah, if he performs in New York, then Grady Tate may make the gig. But if he's going to do a tour of 30 cities, 
those people are, that he recorded the album with are usually, now maybe for Paul, Paul Simon they would, but yeah. they're not going to go and go through the life on the road where you're staying yeah. in a different Ramada Inn every night right. and you get on a bus and drive for 20 hours and then have to set up and play an hour later. Yeah. And then you have to leave the gig and then drive to one night. We left St. Louis, Kings Island in St. Louis at like 1130 a.m. p.m. 1130 p.m. and got into Miami around 10 the next morning by bus, you know, and that's a scare. And so I really felt bad about um, about the, the life that they had to lead as uh, playing every single day. And, I, and yeah. they were great performers. So I knew that. I would definitely want to make the next album with all of them. Yeah. yeah. So that I would no longer be saying, well, you didn't get to be on the album. You didn't get the album credit. Right. But would you come out and play every crummy little place, right. every, every, you know, lounge and bar yeah. and whatever. Yeah. So, so I knew it would be an album that I would do live. I'd been performing in front of fairly decent sized crowds. I found that there was no room for, a lot of subtlety when you're performing at Magic Mountain. You can't do a whole acoustic set and not have bottles thrown at you, you know? <laughs> um, and, um, and so I knew it had to be high energy, had to be more rock than anything I had ever done. Yeah. When you did a, a show, that drove the, the show. Yeah. I knew I wanted to have a couple numbers that would feature some of the musicians and their talents. I wanted to show off what a great lead guitarist Dean Balin was. Yeah. This is a guy, everybody who's ever heard Escape the Pina Colada song knows that, that that's a guy named Dean Balin. And he's yeah. lived with you for 40 years and you don't even know his name. Perfect. So I wanted people to know his name. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so that was part of the dynamic going into the album was, yes, I'm going to tell the, I'm going to tell stories, but I want to tell story songs about people that all of us might be, whether they're yeah. on the stage or they're you in the audience. Um, not going to be doing so many songs about Humphrey Bogart and, and, and movies and, and, mm -hmm. and the Phantom of the Opera and other songs that I did. I'm going to do songs about real people. And yep. I'm going to do them with this set of musicians. I'm going to showcase them as much as I can. And then we'll be ready to perform it. And whatever I do on this album has to be performable. So yeah. like, for example, on this, on the single hymn, I knew that I wanted to have um, 12 violins, four violas and four cellos playing in the chorus. Right. As I wrote the song, I knew that I needed that. And I wrote, Anything that you've ever heard on any album I ever recorded, I'm the orchestrator. It's a rare skill that I have. Most people who are songwriters are not also arrangers and conductors, but right. I happen to be trained that way. So anything you've ever heard on one of my albums that's played by any instrument other than the band, I've written and conducted. This album, though, so I knew that I would not be bringing in 12 violins and four violas and four cellos to go on one of the ballads. I'd have mm -hmm. to make the ballad work with the instrumentation that we had in the band. Yeah. So, so those were all things that went into the making of the album that kind of focused what kind of an album I was going to make. And you composed everything on adventure, right? All words, all lyrics, all words, music, all music. Yep. I, there, there would be no reason to listen to Rupert Holmes singing a song if Rupert Holmes didn't write it. No one has ever said, "I love you," but could you sing the Impossible Dream? <laughs> I just, I would. Would you sing? Would you sing Feelings, please? You know, Although so. a lot of you've had a lot of success with other people doing your songs. I mean, I didn't know until like a couple of days ago you wrote, you got it all over him. You've got it all over him for the Jets. Someone asked yes. you, they said, this is before Britney Spears, before Christina Aguilera. This yeah. is 1986. Someone said, can you write a song? There's a group 
I said, what, what are they like? They said, well, the lead singer is a 14-year-old girl. I said, <laughs> how do I write a love song for a 14-year-old girl without, a, you know, how do I do that? Yeah. And I took, but I took the challenge and, uh, and it went to, that was a record that went to number three on the top 40, number Huge. two on the R&B charts and number one on the adult contemporary charts. It's a great song. And you wrote, we talk about Barry Manilow a lot on the podcast because we're, we're big, we're big Manilow fans. We grew up on that. And I didn't know that you wrote Studio Musician as well. Yeah, Barry has been kind enough to record that on two different live albums. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what's funny about it is that when I wrote the song Studio Musician, um, Barry and I were both in competition. This is before I'd made my first album. But we worked in the New York session scene, you know. Right, right. And we were both in competition for an American Airlines commercial. And we each had our own version of it. And mine went, we're American Airlines doing what we do best. Fly mm -hmm. American, you'll take, we'll take care of the rest. We're American. Uh, and he wrote one that went across the high and jagged. No, I got to start lower. Across the high and jagged mountains. And I thought, oh, that's never going to make it because no airline wants to mention flying over high and jagged mountains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, neither one of us got the gig. We didn't get the job writing, writing that commercial, yeah. but so I, I like the tune. So when I was writing studio musician about the, being the dilemma of being a guy who goes into the studio, man or a woman who goes into the studio and someone sets down a piece of music in front of you and you've got one hour to get it right. And mm -hmm. every trick you have in your, in your, in, in, in your bag of tricks in terms of style or phraseology, the way you play, you've got to put that into the record and they're going to pay yeah. you like $60 and you're giving up all the things that you've worked your whole life to be able to do. And you never get to play your own music. Yeah. So I decided to make the song about that. I decided to use the American airlines commercial music as my chorus. And Barry responded to that. I, yeah. he, I don't think he realized that it, that the song he was singing such a, he was doing such a great job singing the chorus was actually the American Airlines commercial that he was competing with in, 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 in his struggling days. <laughs> That's but uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've had a lot of great people, Rita, Rita Coolidge, Dolly Parton, Dion Warwick, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Judy Collins, Manhattan Transfer. Yeah. Um, it's a very long list of covers. Mac Davis, um, who just passed away today recorded yeah. one of my songs. Yeah, yeah I saw yeah. that. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to ask you really quick before we dig into the album too. I, I know that you mentioned Bells earlier. It reminded me of sort of the New York comedy clubs. Yeah. You, you used to play in the clubs, right? In the comedy clubs. Would you do like a sort of storytellers type uh, thing where you would sing and talk and sing and talk? Or how, what kind of stuff would you do? It's, it's interesting that you say it. It's actually quite a crucial question in, in regards to my career. Seriously. Yeah. I found myself having the dilemma of the fact that I was well known for two songs, which was Escape the Pina Colada song and Him. Yeah. Uh, some people knew Answering Machine on, on the Yacht Rock stations now. That's making a bit of a comeback. Yep. And people knew people knew some of the songs I had written for Streisand and other artists, but they didn't know that I that that I had been the writer on them. Nobody mm -hmm. knew I wrote the song. You got it all over them by no. the jet. Yeah. And I would go into well. Here's something interesting. I want you to think about this for a second. It's a, it was kind of a discovery I made. If you go to a to see an artist and you're a big fan of this artist, and you have all their albums, and and you're so excited. This is the first time they've been in your city 
and you can't wait to see them do these songs live. Mm -hmm. What are the words you never want to hear them say? We're going to be doing songs from our new album now. (laughs) You go, no, you're not. No, I mean, I once saw three right. at a re- rock reunion concert. They say, we're going to be doing mainly songs from our new CD. And the crowd almost killed them. They said, <laughs> no, you've got 11 hits and you're going to play all of them, right? Right, right. Okay. So the thing is that when you go to see an I was not getting, I never had the kind of following. I, I did like this great show at the bottom line after my, and everybody who had ever bought my first album was there. And it yeah. went great. But if I had done a second show, a second night, all the people that knew that album came that first night. So when I would go out trying to earn a living for my family and mainly for my manager, um, I was stuck with the fact that I was going into places, clubs, not Mm -hmm. rock, because I wasn't a rock and roll artist as such. I was going into clubs having to do 14 songs of which the audience maybe knew two. And you know what? People don't want to hear 12 songs they've never heard before all in a row. They get restless. Mm-hmm. Well, sing something I know. But I wasn't going to do New York State of Mind. I didn't write that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Some of them thought I wrote Margaritaville, so I would, sometimes I would slip that in. But, but, you know, or they think Jimmy Buffett wrote Escape the Pina Colada song. <laughs> but, but, so, but now here's the, the opposite of this idea of we're only going to do songs from our new album. And you say, no, I want to do the songs that are do the familiar stuff right because music uh, my own phrase is familiarity breeds content meaning you love to hear something that you've heard through your life and it just resonates with you and it takes you back to where you were yeah i'm sure adventure is like that for you when you listen to it i'm right. sure it catapults you back to when you were much much younger um, but now here's the opposite of that when you go to see a comedian who you like and you know all the comedians work the words you don't want to be saying when you walk out is, gee, only did old material. Mm-hmm. He just did all the old routines I already know. Right. So you don't like hearing only unfamiliar material where, it's, where music is concerned, but you enjoy hearing new material where comedy is concerned because comedy is catching you by surprise. Right. It's taking you somewhere and you don't know where you're going and then it turns out where you're going is funny. Right. So I thought, well... No one complains if you do an hour and a half of new material if you're a comic, but they complain if you're doing pop songs and you don't sing at least 10 songs they know. So what if I approach my performances as if they're comedy routines? Because most of my stories, a lot of them have a kind of a humorous bent to them. Yeah. Uh, The song I Don't Need You on on an adventure is actually when I perform it, I get laughs on the song because it's a funny dilemma that the guy's in. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll talk and set up my songs as if they are Mm. the punchline. Yeah. To a joke I'm telling. I may even tell some jokes on the way to getting to that punchline and then they'll process it as comedy. And 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 everyone will be happy. Then they're laughing, they're entertained. Yeah, I've done yeah. the music, and I was actually headlining at Rodney Dangerfield's club in Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. I was the first music performer to ever be the headliner there because usually the headliner <laughs> is a comedian. Right. And I was performing there, and the great producer Joe Papp, who produced a chorus line, comes up to me afterwards and says, "What you're doing up there is theater. Yeah. Have you ever wanted to write a musical?" And I said, I have an idea. And that became my, how I wrote my first Broadway music. Wow, how cool. How and cool. all because I was trying to find a way yeah, yeah. to do 
to tell people, see, you don't mind if someone tells you a funny story and it's an anecdote, you don't mind that you've never heard it before. Right. You're curious how it's all going to turn out. Right, right. And so with any song that has a plot, one of the things that's fun, even for me today, when I sing Escape, when I sing the Pina Colada song, when I get to the, uh, I knew her smile in an instant, I knew the curve of her face, it was my own lovely lady, and she said, oh, it's you. Right. That's a punchline in a way. Yeah. And, yeah. and so... It was doing that that sort of got me more solidly into musical theater. That's smart. It's and it it, it gives gives people context and brings them yeah. in on. So th- yeah, that's that's smart. Yeah. Why don't we uh, Why don't we dig into the record? I want to be mindful of your time here. So why don't we just? Uh, so this is where we uh, Rupert. This is where we drop the needle. This is where we really dig in. And uh, can I say how fine it is and noble and brave it is of you to actually admit that on 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 a podcast that. So have you been dropping the needle? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, seriously. Now is it your brother as well, or is it just you? Uh, it's I mean, just pretty, me. Yeah. You know, you look fine. You look fine. <laughs> you can beat this. You can beat this. This turned into an intervention. Call me anytime. You got it. If you feel the need to, you know. Just okay. a shoulder to cry on, maybe? It, well, just, just you know, I respect you for coming out and just being flat out honest with you, audience. <laughs> really. Hey, it's Toph. Uh, we hope you enjoyed part one of our time with Rupert Holmes. And part two will be out next week, where we will dive into the adventure album track by track with Rupert. So we will see you next week for part two of our Rupert Holmes episode.